You're listening to the Tapu Podcast, a podcast aimed at changing the culture by changing the conversation surrounding sexual violence, domestic violence, mental illness, and many other taboo topics or issues that don't get discussed enough that keep our Pacific Island community divided. Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Vienna. Uh, Glad to be with you guys again and absolutely glad to be putting out this episode. Uh, As was mentioned on our social media, and I'll mention it again here, Tapu is undergoing some changes. We've been, we have decided to expand our platform and we've got two shows going on now. We've got this one, the podcast, and then we have a Facebook live show. Um, where Lena and Ruby will be interviewing a lot of people within the key people within the community that they know and I will be interviewing people from the community that I know and I'll be putting it through out through the podcast um, today's interview will be with Lanita Holo she is a licensed therapist that works here in the Salt Lake Valley she's been uh, working as a therapist for the past um 20 years, I think, maybe longer. I think she mentions it in the interview, and I'm sorry that I don't know right now, right off the top of my head. But she has been a very active member within our Pacific Island community and trying to bring more awareness um, to mental health and mental illness. And also, she's done a lot of work within the court system and trying to help our people who end up either going through court um, and have been mandated to take... Uh, anger management classes she partners with a lot of other organizations who who do work with kids and things like that her specialty is actually in sexual trauma and so and she touches that on that a little bit in the interview now a few other things just to know by about the interview she in case you know you are triggered or you feel triggered sexual violence will definitely come come up in the interview and we do talk a little bit about help for perpetrators or offenders of sexual crimes so be aware of that um also just you know so you know i am still working through the sound um i mean we've been doing this podcast since may now and there's been so much going on that it sometimes it's hard to just sit down and really try to figure out how to run a podcast with um working the sound and editing everything and all of that it's been difficult but uh at the same time it's so worth it this has all been so worth it um because i from the time that we started to this point right now there have been so many positive changes and there have been so many groups, there have been people, there have been um, just a ton of stuff where people are trying to change the conversation. They're trying to open up um, conversations on sexual violence, on mental illness, on suicide, on things that go on within our heads that we feel too scared to talk about. And I see so many stepping up within our community and being vulnerable, sharing their stories, offering help, being um, advocates for a lot of these issues that we as a community need to fight against. And so I'm excited to see those changes and especially to just keep push, pushing forward on what we're trying to do here with Tapu. Um, just want to give a huge shout out to Sifa Wesi. 
he if that intro that you guys heard that you know that cool new intro that was composed by Sifa Wesi. Um, many of you who have been following us from the very beginning may remember Sifa from a previous interview that we had done with him, one of the uh, previous episodes. He also helped us a lot on the uh, Bohiva during the summer. And so Sifa is a good friend of ours and one of our uh, major supporters. I just, I love the guy and his family and I'm just grateful for him um, providing an intro for this podcast. I mean, it's such a small thing, but um, in the grand scheme of things, this is how the Tongan community works. We help each other out. We're there with, for each other. And whatever we do have, we don't have much. But what we do have, we are more than willing to share. Um, so, yeah. I'll, I will even share his information for those of you who do need or would like somebody to compose something for you or whatever it is. This guy's legit. So, um, Sifa Wesi, I'll post his um, Instagram um, handle in the show notes. <clears throat> Beyond that, I just want to thank you guys for sticking with us through our ups and our downs. Um, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for the love, for the support, and for just cheering us on because this task that we've taken on, it's not easy. You know, that's the truth is that it's been hard and it's I know that it's going to continue to be hard. Um, there are stories that are here or things that happen that trigger me uh, with my own traumas. But um, it's worth it to me to push forward with this platform and with what we're trying to do because I also recognize that there are other people in our community who get triggered, who are still suffering or who are going to be, become victims in the future. And unless we try to create change now, the future will look much, much worse. <clears throat> I believe in all of us partnering together, that if we can all come together and start, at least start this conversation, that we can add information and education to those conversations and that that will really help change um, on this forefront. Um, I'm new to recording on my own too. I'm not like, I, I'm not good at this, but, <clears throat> and I'm sorry I keep clearing my throat. I'm sick. Uh, I've been trying to get over this cold for the past, you know, a few days here and it's just been kicking my butt. But anyways, as I was saying, like we just appreciate and love all of our followers. Um, I'm excited to continue pursuing this path with the podcast uh, independently while Lena and Ruby, you know, continue to run the Facebook live show. Um, there are a lot of people in the community who have already been working hard at eliminating sexual violence and bringing awareness to this issue. And so I want to be able to create this space where we can provide education and information to those of you who are really, really wanting it. Um, <clears throat> part of my healing process when I had, you know, gone through everything and decided to come forward with my story and just all of that, part of what really helps me heal is the education and learning about things. And so um, for those of you who may be like me and may need that information and may need some education, 
that's the purpose of this podcast to supply you with that information that can help change behavior for you or for those around you so I know I'm rambling now um, but that's what podcasts are meant for they're meant for rambling right anyway um, yes Lani Taholo she is an amazing therapist she's doing so much work with our Pacific Islanders and I'm, I'm excited to share this interview with you. Before I continue, um, Lani does share her email address. So, and this is at the very end of the pop of the interview, but I want to share it now just for any of you who don't make it all the way through the interview or who, who just really want that information and want to directly email her and talk directly with her. Her email is Lani, L-A-N-I dot Taholo, T-A-H-O-L-O at utah.edu and I'll put that email address in our show notes as well enjoy the show okay I am sitting here with Lani Taholo Um, now we just talked about your title and I don't know specifically what is so could you share with us your sure what your official title (laughs) is sure so um, I am a licensed clinical social worker so I'm an LCSW and um, I am a PhD candidate um, at the College of Social Work at the University of Utah, and I'm getting ready to defend my dissertation in four weeks. Exciting. Yes. <laughs> Bonnie, thank you so much You're for welcome. doing this interview with me. I appreciate You're you welcome. so much um, being able to sit down with me and, um, and talk about a few things that I, I feel like our community may need to hear, especially from a licensed therapist. Thank you. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is to talk about your line of work, what you do, and why you do it. Okay. So I'm actually a, um, a therapist. I'm also a clinical director um, at Child and Family Empowerment Services. Um, and I um, oversee a team of about um, seven therapists. Um, including myself, that's eight of us, um, and two of them are interns. So we have a couple of interns from the University of Utah. Um, and we are a practicum site for the University of Utah and for uh, University of Denver and for University of Phoenix, and they're all MSW um, master level students, and then We've also accepted um, and worked with BSW, Bachelors of Social Work level students from BYU-Hawaii. So we have we are practicum site for those four um, universities. And then um, we hold weekly um, clinical staffings where um, we come together as a clinical team and every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at our clinic, um, we hold clinical meetings where we staff the dynamics of individual families that really need clinical expertise. And um, that's also where we give case assignments. So if we have some really tough cases coming in that need special skills, we actually take a look at openings. So we look at schedules and then we look to see who has those specific skills to help that specific family. And um, we're really careful about what type of cases we give to our interns Mm -hmm. as opposed to what type of cases we give to our full-time employees and our who've already been 
like fully licensed or are earning their license and have already gone beyond their internship and have passed the licensing exam. So, um, so we're really aware of all of those levels and we're really careful about what level of difficulty actually goes to who, mm -hmm. uh, which therapists. So it requires a specific set of skills in order to deal with specific types of families and their dynamics. So we do this on a daily, weekly basis, and um, we receive cases from Medicaid, crime victim reparation, um, all ma most major insurances except for select health, um, which is really difficult um, to get on their panel. I know several other agencies have tried for years. <laughs> That's yeah. been a difficult piece. Um, we also accept... Um, uh, vouchers from different churches who are interested in helping their families from their congregations. So we've worked with Catholic Community Services over the years. We've also worked uh, LDS family or LDS, uh, the LDS Church. They also refer cases over to, to us, and we're actually on their preferred provider list and on their website. And um, but we, all I'm saying is, is that we keep it broad and open yeah. to um, anyone in the community that wishes to receive help. So anyone that comes in peace is welcome. Mm -hmm. um, if we are a, um, we work with trauma, mm -hmm. victims of trauma, and um, we work a lot with cultural aspects that deal with um in terms of, for example, if you have someone that has suffered trauma, but within their culture, they view it a certain way, right. we pay specific attention to those types of dynamics so that we can make sure that we are actually um, treating them in a way that's actually effective mm -hmm. and that they can relate to. Right. Otherwise, it, it's, it's really not helpful. Right. Yeah. So we're careful. We don't want to do more damage than good. Mm -hmm. We want to do only good and do no harm. <laughs> so that's what we do, and we work a lot with the community. Um, and um, we take, we usually see children from three and a half because they are verbal right, right. around that time mm -hmm. to uh, till they pass away. We've had elderly that have come, uh, couples, families, individual work, uh, group work, some. Awesome. We're actually yes. running a group at the YWCA right now. Really? Yeah. Okay. So first group is this Friday in uh -huh. two days. Um, and it's from 12 to 2 for the women that are there on campus uh -huh. and, mm -hmm, over the YWCA. So it's a women's self-empowerment group that we're okay. running for six weeks. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so... The next question I have is why? Why? Okay, why why right. this line of work? Yeah. yeah. So ever since I was little, um, I've always wanted to be a social worker. And I think my real, my first example was my mother. Mm -hmm. My mother um, loved to entrench herself in the neighborhood and in the community. And she was also a special ed teacher. Mm -hmm. And so she would immerse herself in the community. She knew everything about everybody, and she was um, she loved to cook, so she would constantly bake um, cookies and bread and pies and cake and all sorts of things, and she would have my sisters and I deliver them 
all over the neighborhood, like on a regular basis. <laughs> so we grew up doing this. And you, you grew up in... So I was born in Hawaii, uh-huh. and then we moved to San Francisco. Okay. And um, and then from San Francisco, when we, I was about 15 and a half, almost 16, we moved to from California to Salt Lake City. Okay, so... And so it's all of everywhere, <laughs> getting to know all the neighbors, taking it out. And um, the other piece that my mom did was um, she would hook um, families and people up to resources that she knew in the community. Mm-hmm. And I would see people's lives change. So I just automatically was drawn to this ever since I've been little. My father is, um, he worked, He the reason why we moved from um, Hawaii to San Francisco, my dad landed a job with Pan American Airlines, like many Tongan men did in yes. the 60s, uh-huh. late 50s, early 60s, and and he retired, ended up retiring from Pan Am, but what dad did was he brought many families from Tonga, and he hooked them up with resources, so I kind of had, yeah, and then my so dad, had these unofficial social workers, <laughs> exactly, influencing yeah. me, and then my grandmother, Anaseni Takipol Tamorpeao Katoa, she raised us as well, um, and she was like the premier social worker, and you know we would go to three different churches every Sunday, and you know sing in Tongan, and you know eat lots of food <laughs> wherever we went, but. Grandma always hooked up with all of the different communities, and she knew everyone everywhere. So it just is a natural part of the 60s, growing up in San Francisco, and then moving out here, and yeah. So very much so. So I'm, it's a rich um, background. I'd never trade it for anything, right. the diversity and the richness of it. So how do you contrast your upbringing and, you know, watching social work, you know, being unofficially done through your parents and now what you do officially, you know, being licensed and then also doing it in like a Western world? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question because um, what I loved about my mom and dad and my grandmother, they didn't wait for anyone to say, okay, you're now licensed, so now you can go out and do it. They just did it of their own volition and because um, my understanding of the spirit of being Pacific Islander, right, Mm -hmm. is, is you just love to give and you love to network and you love your community and your village. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's the upside that I really see that, um, the autonomy of that is very powerful. On the other side of this, where you go through the whole licensing process and you know, and then you get your diff- various degrees mm-hmm. and you're actually going through a dissertation and you, you're constantly evaluated by others. Constantly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the part that is tough and it's rigorous, but I think is so um, needed is you're constantly having to check yourself and you're constantly have to, having to check your intentions and you're constantly having to check your work. And if your work isn't up to par and your skills aren't just, you know, up to par and you don't pass licensing mm-hmm. and you have to go through Doppel and you have to go through 4,000 hours of supervision and you have to pass the exam. You, you have to do these things, but they set boundaries and parameters where you constantly on different levels check yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's that's the upside of that is that it's, it's um, tons of evaluation, including self evaluation Um, Mm -hmm. and what's powerful about that is you begin to realize on a deeper level how much you impact others 
I think with my grandmother and my father and my mother, I know because we've had these talks before that they they knew that we loved them and and that there was this deep deep emotional relationship and connection. But I do not know if they really understood the full impact of how much they impacted us. Because I think part of that requires that we do self-checks and Mm self-evaluations. And so I'm not saying that I'm at that full piece yet, but I am constantly checking how I impact others. And I, 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 I'm not sure because I never heard that from grandma and from mom and dad that they were constantly self-evaluating in terms of how they impacted others. They just knew from feedback, people, people coming up and going, Oh, malo, malo apito. And, you know, ofatu, and, you know, saying, I love you. And that was more than enough. And that was more than enough. And then, you know, the self-evaluation is done. Mm -hmm. Oh, they love me. We're done. They're grateful. They're they're grateful. We're done. Let's go on to the next thing. On the other side of the coin, right? Uh Because there is another side. There is another side. Mm -hmm. And when you're constantly evaluating yourself, right, and you've got all these other eyes and ears and Mm -hmm. people evaluating you and your work, it is different in the sense that, I mean, it's nice when people say they like your work or they appreciate it. But I have to tell you, it's not enough for me. Yeah. It, that doesn't do it for me. Okay. I mean, I, I love that. I appreciate it. I want the connection. Uh-huh. But but because at these different levels, um, those are not the measures that are used <laughs> to say you've passed this level. Mm-hmm. They thanked you. So you're all good. Yeah. That's not the measurement. Uh-huh. The measurement is did when you use that skill how effective was it and how did it change the other person's life right. and what are the results of that mm-hmm. so and then now you need to name all those results and the impact that that's had on other people from them mm-hmm. so it it goes into a, a um i would have to say the domino effect of the self-evaluation on that side is is carefully measured and it's carefully looked at and it's huge because now I'm I'm actually I'm not as carefree about you know what I talk about what I share when it comes to um, specific things that people want to hear from me Mm -hmm. I'm careful about that so I'm always wanting to know number one is this really going to make a difference Mm -hmm. you know for what we're like today like what we're going to talk about how is this going to impact the here the listeners that are going to listen to this is it really going to make a difference if it is how i want to know how right and you know my grandma and grandpa and my mom and dad were like oh they said thank you i'm good my little people that's not good enough for me i have to know how and Uh why and and how do you measure that and and then if you do then understand the impact of that the, the next piece I want to share is that then you begin to prioritize your information. Yeah. And that's the thing that I, I get concerned about for our people mm-hmm. is we have all these beautiful values, but do we prioritize them? Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I talk about in my dissertation is, is, is prioritizing our values because um, if we just accept whatever's out there all of it all of it yeah. and we're not um 
careful in our own evaluation of how we really of the information that's coming that's in. coming in and how we absorb it and then how we put it out mm-hmm. and how does that affect ourselves, our families, those around us, our communities, our families, everybody, then and our neighbors. I how what is the impact? Mm-hmm. So I think um, realizing how we impact others means we become more aware of how we prioritize our values because then we go oh I impacted that person that way is that really like how I wanted that to come out or should I prioritize that this is my most important thing that I should have done which is a more important value to me so we start prioritizing Mm -hmm. according to to impact and effect right and then we start getting closer to the results we really desire Mm -hmm. So I I can totally understand that. I mean, because with this podcast and with what I'm doing, I mean, I'm not licensed to do, to offer any real help. I'm not a therapist, but the information is important. And because of that, I, I, and because this goes out to so many different people, I want to be careful with what I'm putting out there because a lot of them are not actually going to be going and getting actual help. Right. And this may be, you know, the podcast or even social media yes. and even, you know, their own communities or families may be the only place where they actually go to get help. Yes. And so because of that, I want to be careful with the information that goes out yes. because impact is real, especially in our community. That's very verbal at the coconut wire just works you know, right. from here all the way to the <laughs> islands that's right. and it spreads. And as it spreads, People change the information as it goes from ear to ear. That's right. And so I do want to be careful with, you know, especially when talking about trauma and mental yes. health. Yes. That I want to be careful with the information. And so I can totally, I understand what you're saying. Yes. For sure. Yes. Thanks, Fiona. Yeah. Um, let me see. So something else I wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, now with Tapu, um, I, I, as you know, I mean, we, uh, both you and I were at the March for Marley, which was a, a yes. vigil held. Yes. Um, for a young um, child within our community who was sexually abused. Yes. And, um, and so, and, and Tapu, what we are trying to do is to advocate for victims of, and survivors of sexual violence to the community to let them know that we need to be as sympathetic as possible to them. I, I think often the conversation, because it's so scary and because I think a lot of people don't really know how to address it, sometimes... Uh, people can tend to victim blame and push, you know, explain that situation in their heads by blaming the victim. Mm-hmm. Now, um, for me, with Tapu, um, well, what I wanted to ask you are what are some things that you feel like our community can, can learn or should learn um, about sexual violence, about sexual abuse, about rape? What are some things that you as a therapist would like to share with our community on mm-hmm. that issue? Sure. So as a Pacific Islander myself... Um, and being raised by, you know, my father was Dongan and my mother's Hawaiian, Chinese, Norwegian, but, and my grandmother Takipo that raised us was, is Tongan. I, I would say that I was very much raised in the Tongan way. In the Tongan upbringing. Yeah, in the upbringing. Yeah. That's how we were raised. And the, I think, um, one of the things that has really emerged from, doing this work and this dissertation work and actually doing research and meeting with um, Pacific Islander um, community stakeholders and then running an actual trauma intervention for violence, including sexual violence and assault 
and including suicide and self-harm, right? Right. Um, such as cutting. So those, what has emerged is that um, if we look at sexual violence or trauma and then we look at how it intersects with our culture, one of the pieces that, that has definitely emerged in the data is that um, adults and are actually, Pacific Islander adults are revealing that when they grew up, Definitely, they were told by their parents and their elders to go and feluaki and, you know, go hug and kiss the brand new relative that they just met for the first time that just came from the islands. Mm -hmm. And that typically these people ended up living in their homes. Okay, there are multiple cases where people have been sexually abused by these very same people that they were told to hug and kiss and they have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we've talked about in Kaimana and in our intervention, which is the name of my dissertation, which means um, Kai and Mana. So it is um, divine power from the ocean, from the waves, right? Mm-hmm. So what we talk about in Kaimana is is um, the ability to be able to speak our truth. And part of speaking our truth is to be able to say, we don't need our small children to go and, you know, they can show respect, but to actually physically mm-hmm. show affection to someone that they just met for the first time. That is something that we're actually talking about setting boundaries on Mm -hmm. and to say until you really know that person over time you've really trusted them um and that there's been healthy boundaries and nobody's getting sexually abused or touched in any way or verbally abused or hurt um that that people over time can develop trust because what we're talking about is developing trust right and um the unfortunately because you know we, we try in our villages, right, mm-hmm. to trust and to show respect. And part of that is the physicality piece of actually showing affection and umma, mm-hmm. you know, to the face and give the hug. It When the younger children here tend to equate here as in, in the United States, the Ameri- in, the yeah. United States uh-huh. in America, tend to equate um, physical affection with I'm making an emotional connection with you, right. which means that on some level I'm developing some sort of a, a level of trust with you. Mm-hmm. So when mom or dad leave to go to work and the person is left in the house alone mm-hmm. with the child or the children, um, even adolescents or young teenagers, they can be sexually abused. They mm-hmm. can be touched. They can be, you know, Things have happened, and many cases have come, you know, we've, right. where we've had to deal with that. So this is what's come out even, you know, more so in the data. So it's important to be able to say part of it is looking at our own culture mm-hmm. and, and the expectations that we have of just saying, it's okay to go, you know, Uma and kiss mm-hmm. and trust, you know, this new relative that just came from, you know, so, such and such a place or from the islands. Um, without really allowing the child to be in a place where they can be safe, work on developing trust, real trust, Mm -hmm. relationships with people who do not hurt them and would protect them from anything Mm -hmm. like that, 
Um, but that can only happen over time. It doesn't happen immediately right when they meet. Mm -hmm. So um, what we're trying to do is teach our parents. So I've been invited to speak at a local Tongan ward this Sunday oh, wow. about this very thing. Awesome. And this, so okay. <laughs> here in Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm coming with my PowerPoint. We're going to talk about this. Yes. And we're going to talk about these boundaries mm -hmm. that we could do to actually say, let's protect our children first. Mm -hmm. Let's take care of our precious future first. And these beautiful, precious children who have no voice mm -hmm. when they're little and they're young and they don't even have the brain capacity to be able to articulate what just happened to them when they have been raped or when they have been sexually molested. Right. They don't know how to articulate that. They just know that something very bad has happened. So... Um, I'm pretty forthright now, lately, in being able to come forth and say that I was sexually molested when I was younger. Um, it happened with some neighborhood boys. Um, we were living in California, and um, I was outside. I was four, and some boys took me. And all I remember is some of the stuff that they did. But I, I just remember that when I came back to the house because they what they did was I was screaming and they were trying to close my mouth and I heard an adult from upstairs going what's going on down there and they the boys had to get rid of me <laughs> so they dropped me back off on the corner where they found me which was like just down the street from my house mm -hmm. like on the same block and I guess I had wandered with my little bike or whatever anyways I went back home yeah and I just remember hiding under the bed for weeks. I don't, you know, who knows what time, how long I did it. I just remember my mom saying, we couldn't find Lonnie for a long time. Like, we'd find her, but then, and then, you know, we'd eat, have dinner, go to sleep, but then we couldn't find Lonnie again. Mm -hmm. And I just remember my mom going, Lonnie, it went on for weeks. And I, it, to me, it felt like a long time. When you're four, you don't know. Right. But it just, I just remember hiding for a long time because I knew something bad happened, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how to tell my you mom and dad. I didn't have the words and I didn't have the capacity to mm -hmm. express the words. So for a long time, my mom and dad never knew what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know that I told my dad. I don't even think I told my dad before he passed away in 1996. I, I haven't had the words for a long time. I'm, I'm turning 58, and I'm, I'm just now having the words to be able to even share that I this happened to me, mm -hmm. right? But, I mean, I've done my own work to earlier, but that was just me, mm -hmm. just me and my therapist, yeah. not being able to express it and say it out loud, and, except for those that are very, very close to me. But I, but I have to say that that was huge to, for me to remember in my body, and I can only imagine for all the listeners for those who have gone through something similar when they were younger and didn't know how to deal with it and weren't protected or didn't have someone there to protect them at that time. Because I, I know my mom and dad would have protected me oh, yeah. had they known, mm -hmm. but they didn't know. And they just knew that I kept hiding. Mm -hmm. And um, they knew something was wrong, but at, in the early 60s, people weren't taking their kids to a therapist. Right. <laughs> I mean... It's still kind of a, I mean, not a new concept, right. but I think people are still trying to accept that That's right. mental health is real and that yes. it's okay yes. to get help. Yes. Yeah. So I think 
the combination of what I went through and then receiving my own healing mm-hmm. and then seeing my mother and father and how they, and my grandmother, how they connected with the community, all of those pieces led up to, I, I do want to be a therapist. I do understand. I do want to learn all of the skills necessary um, and be centered and have a good balance. And the other pieces is that I had to do my own work because it's really important that our own stuff doesn't get mixed up with the person that we see. When I see someone, it's all about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm aware of my own stuff. It's called transference and countertransference. But it's um, you have to keep your own stuff in check. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a, a good um, life outside of work yeah. <laughs> in order mm-hmm. to do this kind of work. Self-care. And that's why I'm, that's yeah. right. So I'm grateful <laughs> for my family. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we, we brought up a few terms that I know people are familiar with, like trauma, mm-hmm. but I think it's good to have a clear definition as to what trauma is because, you know, as people talk about mm-hmm. it outside, you know, mm-hmm. you, you hear what you, you think mm-hmm. it may mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. but what, can you give us an actual definition for trauma? Yeah. So let me just give you, um, a kind of a broad clinical, okay. you know, um, meaning for it but I'd like to do it in terms of um to say it in a way that that comes across understandable uh-huh. right so not all that clinical jargon yeah so it, it's whenever it's when something has impacted and interrupted our lives to the point where we are hurt and have been affected to the level where we now can no longer function in our daily roles. So when we, when, when, um, I'm going to school, I can't concentrate. When I go to work, that's all I can think about. When I'm even talking with my close friends, it's always in the back burner of my mind. And even when, and when I'm alone, that's all I think about. So it completely overtakes me, takes over your life. And it's difficult to actually function in your roles in life. Mm -hmm. So your roles in your family, your roles at school, your role at work, you know, wherever you're at, church, all of those things. So it greatly impacts those. So so, um, I really want to also say that it doesn't, it's really important to say that it doesn't matter if you have been um, sexually molested once as opposed to 20 times. Now, that doesn't mean um, that they're not either one is valid. They're both valid. But what I want to say is that some people um, think or perceive that if someone's been sexually molested 20 times, then they must be worse off than the one that where it happened once. Uh-huh. But I've been in the field for 35 years and long enough to know, and I've worked with rape victims, and um, my specialty is working with victims who have been victims of sex abuse mm-hmm. So over the years. So the, the, one, the one person who's been raped or sexually molested once, if it impacted her body and her life, in such a way that the trauma was so severe that it did the one time affected her her roles and her major roles in life. Um, that was enough 
that her perception, the way she received it, mm -hmm. it's as if she were sexually molested 20 times. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. And so we never downplay ever when someone says, well, it only happened once, you know, or he only touched me once or, or the opposite. We've had boys or men come in when they talking about when they were boys mm -hmm. this is what my babysitter did to me or this is even i know this sounds terrible this is what my mother did to me right, right? or this is what my older cousins or whatever sister whatever so we've had it happen on all sides um where it's not specifically one sex mm -hmm. so we've seen that and so i we never downplay when it's the the number of times mm -hmm. um Obviously, there are some um, mental health concerns when it's happened uh, at a younger age. There's actually studies to show that the younger it happens and the more frequent it happens, that um, developmentally, they develop some pretty severe, can develop some pretty severe uh, disorders. Or, you know, they it, it's not just trauma, it's complex trauma. Right. Right, it's if gone it's to a different as a, level. To you, yes, as a child, as a child yeah. and frequently mm -hmm. as a child, because and the reason why is because their brains and their bodies are developing right. at that time. Uh -huh. So they're they're actually like little hard drives. So they're actually absorbing all of that information, and it's becoming a part of them. Yeah, and then using that information and to process. The right, world. and then they're using that information to process, it, and that becomes the lens through which they view the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's the danger of that piece. Okay. Right. So the next question, the follow-up question I have to that is, and I think a lot of people have asked this, when we brought up this conversation, this topic, and there are people who have experienced it, but some of them have you know, found ways to cope. If somebody has experienced trauma as a child, um, what would your recommendation be to that person, whether they think they need help or not? Yeah. You know, I'm not one for opening up a can of worms, but let me tell you this. If there's something that's happened in someone's past and it's impacting them in the present tense, I always say we have to go there. Yeah. I always say we have to go there because it's impacting them in the present tense. Yeah. And there's a great book by Carol K. Truman. So it's Carol with a K and then middle initial K and then Truman, T-R-U-M-A-N. It's called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. And that's exactly what this is. The title actually says that. Yeah. That there's feelings if they haven't been resolved they keep resurrecting uh -huh. and they never are buried mm -hmm. it's the ones that get resolved that actually get buried and 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 they actually don't resurrect back up because there's no need to there's been closure right so i always say i'm not big for opening up the can of worms but if it's impacting you in the present tense then that's something we need to help prepare you for and then go from there and actually work on it. So my thing is is to assess your situation and to see if there are indicators that, that actually are showing and indicating to you that it's impacting you in your present life. Yeah. In any of your roles. Right. Any of them. Mm -hmm. And if and it is, that should be the deciding that factor. That should be the deciding factor for actually going to get the help. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the the other piece is I we really recommend things like journaling artwork to actually do things that help release like your your emotions yeah your pain because what happens is that 
that becomes kind of people's safe way mm -hmm. to actually release and express. And what I say to um, many of the people that we work with is, so let's say you're not really aware. You're here for something else or for somebody else. But all of a sudden, you've been either journaling or you've been drawing or you've been writing poems or you've been writing music. You've been doing all those things that you love. And what you're beginning to notice is that there's some things coming and out showing up and are emerging out of the parts where you feel safe enough for them to emerge out. That's the thing that I want to say about the unconscious is that when we feel safe enough, our bodies will begin to express it. And then it starts to emerge in places where we feel safe. So I know that sometimes um, caretakers and parents get frustrated because they're like, you know, my kid was acting out today. I, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but when children act out, it's because they feel safe enough to act out. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and, and when they don't feel safe enough, you see them just kind of keep to themselves. They don't act out because they don't feel safe enough to act out. And they're, they're not themselves, mm -hmm. right? They just act like they're obedient or whatever. But they're deep inside, they're not showing. They're, they're hiding something. They're hiding something, mm -hmm. right. But when they're, they feel safe enough, to let it actually out, if that's an indicator that they feel safe and that they can do it. So it's the same thing with being able to journal, you know, do art or anything that you love, dance, whatever. Right. Just when, just notice as you're doing those things that if things are starting to come out, and you're like, okay, I didn't realize that that was in my childhood. Let me see if that's actually impacting me, you know, in the present tense. Um, then just allow that to come. I would say don't force it. Just allow it to come. If it comes, then be aware of it and then see if that's something that's impacting you now and then ask for help um, and or talk to someone you really trust and, you know, and then reach out to people that you can talk to also. I think you've got your podcast, yep. right? Mm -hmm. There's blogs. There's different things people can reach out to, but we want to let them know about these types of resources so that they can say, okay, this is what's going on, mm -hmm. you know, Um and I, I think if anything, um, not everybody has to have therapy. I just think it's okay if they feel like they um, want to be able to talk to someone that's not going to share their information with mm -hmm. anyone else. It's confidential. The only exception is if there's a matter of life or death going on. Like if, like if someone's actually going to kill themselves right. or they're going to commit suicide. suicide yeah. Is, yeah. By we are mandated reporters by law uh -huh. that we have to make sure people are safe. Yeah. So other than that, their information is completely confidential. Right. Mm -hmm. So as we do that and we keep everything in law files and everything's confidential, they have a safe place to be able to just be themselves and just say, you know, not worry about thinking, Oh, I'm dumb or that's a dumb question. That's one of our ground rules. One of my ground rules I share with them is when you come, we want this to be a safe place for you. And we want you to know that no question is a dumb question. And that when you say something to me and I'm looking down or I'm looking up, I'm, I can tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking the information you just shared with me was so important. How do I use that information to help you? And it's never about judging you. It's never about judgment. It can't be. We're all here on the earth on the same, in the same boat. People have stories. I remember when I used, for, used to work for Division of Child Family Services, and I had worked with some um, 
those that had been involved with prostitution and some of them had actually prostituted some of their own children. And I remember just thinking, how could they do that? You know, these are like, you know, they're just bad people. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, you know, when you actually sit down and you meet with these people that have actually been in these situations and you listen to their stories and then you go, Oh my gosh. Okay, I can understand now how you thought this and how you received that message and ended up and ended up over here yeah. and in these really scary circumstances where you didn't even know you had any sense of power or control or choice in the matter because of the way that things were pounded into you. I mean, no one can judge anyone and it's just taught me over the years how important it is to respect everyone and their own story Mm -hmm. so that that's why i recommend it i'm not saying it has to be for everyone but it's a safe place to be able to go to have your own you know safe space and and not have your information shared Mm -hmm. by law (laughs) yes here well now that we're talking about that the next question i did have was about perpetrators of sexual Um, crimes right you know i mean because we're talking about not judging somebody for what they have done and, um, and I think that in our community, I, and as we had mentioned, that some of those who are perpetrating these crimes, they're family members. And it makes it hard for family members to be able to report these types mm-hmm. of things mm-hmm. because they're reporting on their family. And mm-hmm. then it will reflect back negatively in shame or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But do you have advice that you would offer to a perpetrator or to someone who has... Because I, I don't want to label somebody as a perpetrator, mm-hmm. but somebody who may have you know, done something... Um, like that who has you know committed a sexual crime sure so we yeah the, I typically use the word offender and um, offender okay. there's enough studies to show out there that offenders many times have been are victims themselves, uh, are victims themselves. Yes. and that um, what they've what's happened and depending on their developmental uh, levels when the abuse did happen, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what happens is they begin to act some of that out, right? Right. And if there is no intervention and no boundaries and no parameters to actually get the help immediately Mm -hmm. and to set up boundaries so that people are safe, and I'm talking about even including the offender, like Mm -hmm. let's say they're an adolescent or a young teenager, Mm -hmm. it was important for them to feel safe with themselves mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. See, like all these things need to be, it needs to have an intervention and they need, all these things need to be prepared. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely I would say um, that it's important for anyone who has offended to understand that, especially um, if you know that there were things that happened when you were younger, um, I would I would have to say that, you know, when we are still young, in our adolescence, child, child, childhood age, adolescence, preteens, we're still developing. <laughs> our brains are still developing, mm-hmm. right? And so, all I'm gonna say is, is um, it's important to not um, destroy yourself. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand that you're still a person. You're still important. You still have meaning and that you need to get, you know, it's important to get the help. Mm -hmm. And once you get the help, I think what's important is that 
the purpose of the help is to help free you from the bonds of feeling like you're imprisoned to this identity of being an offender. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And so it's important, even more important for them to be able to step aside from that, to be able to say, "I, I need the help and I want the help. For victims, and especially in our society, it's totally appropriate for victim to say, to come forward I need say, help, yes. I want help. And they're like, oh, you're a victim. Of course you need mm-hmm. help in you. So it's all um, sanctioned, right, mm-hmm. by our society. But then for whatever reason, when it comes to an offender, oh, you're an offender, so you don't really, you know, you're just a bad person. Right. You really should be an outcast. Mm-hmm. You really shouldn't have anything to do with society. Mm-hmm. Well, even in our culture, we don't believe that. We believe that the person still needs to live and be among our people, but we just have to figure out a way to be able to have, you know, parameters. And to help that person heal, too. And to help that person mm-hmm. heal, too. That's right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that what they did was all right. Right. I'm, I'm absolutely. Not, absolutely I'm not. not. <laughs> <laughs> but what we are saying is, is that we're looking for healing for everyone. Right. That's the issue. Exactly. Yeah. Because if we're trying to, I mean, if we're looking at this as a problem that needs to be solved, Mm -hmm. then we have to look at both sides Mm -hmm. of the story. If we're only looking at victims and helping victims and Mm -hmm. helping them cope, Mm -hmm. that doesn't really solve, you know, offenders will continue to offend. Right. And, um, And I think recognizing that there, kind of like you said, that there is so much more to a person's story than the worst thing that they've done. That's right. You know, I I think if we as a community can recognize that, I think that it can open up healing for so many people. I completely agree with that. And I know that in the old traditional ways, like in the villages, people are banished. I know that. I mean, you know, there's stories Mm -hmm. (laughs) from, from our islands and from the villages where people are banished for, you know, having broken some of the you know, the cultural traditions and they did something wrong, you know, in yes. the family and they've been banished. So all I'm saying is, is that even with those that have been banished, they're still alive. So there's, we, we still have to learn how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so it's the reality is, is that this planet is, is really a small place. Mm-hmm. And, and are we going to push people away and then say, go away to somewhere else. And then that pattern continues. Yes. Or are we going to say, come, let's work together, let's get the help, let's do what we need to do here mm-hmm. so that we can try to help. And the whole thing is is to gain resolution yeah. here, uh-huh. now, you know, as mm-hmm. much as possible so that people don't have to continue to suffer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Well, um, last question. Um, are there any myths uh, regarding mental health and even sexual trauma that you would like to dispel within our community. There's a lot of things and information that gets shared by, you know, word of mouth and what they hear. But are there things that you frequently hear, you know, that you feel like is something that we should just completely stop sharing or spreading? Mm. Well, I, I want to help, um, number one, those that have actually um, been in a situation where they're wondering if it was their fault or they're wondering if they, they actually started something by, um, you know, there's a reason why he did this to me. I must have done something wrong mm-hmm. to bring this on to myself. Mm-hmm. That, 
immediately I just have to say that that's a falsehood. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't care if she's sitting there naked. Right. It is nobody's mm-hmm. right to touch her or him. Uh-huh. I don't care if he's sitting there naked. Nobody has a right to touch anyone else. Right. Period. Mm-hmm. End of story. And so um, the myths of, well, you know, we dressed a certain way, so that's why it happened. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we said something a certain way or looked a certain way or whatever. Um, when a person is determined to, or, you know, they're driven to actually do something to hurt someone else or to create the offense, um, it doesn't really matter what they're wearing exactly. or how they looked or what the, it's, it has nothing to do with intimate connection. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a, it's a, it's, it's a crime of passion, mm-hmm. right? In terms of, uh, when we're talking about sexual violence and, and assault. So I just want to be really, really, really clear that we all own our own crap. And and to say that it was because somebody else, you know, made me do it or, you know, it looked like that. I, you know, we all have to take responsibility for our own stuff. Yeah. But that's really where the healing begins is when we take ownership. When you take ownership. That's right. 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 Yeah. So I really want to move away from the myths. And I'm not saying... I'm not saying for everyone to, you know, go out and dress provocatively and say, well, Lonnie said that. That's not the goal here. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, is for whatever reason, if somebody were to be in that situation, it is absolutely false that that's what actually is, you know, what created it and created the drive. (laughs) So I want to move away from that myth. Um, I also want to move away from the myth that um, in, in terms of our own culture that, um, that, that all the men are mean and big and beat their wives mm-hmm. and that all the women are um, weak and submissive I'm sorry, but the Pacific Islander women are the most, are the strongest women that I know. I agree. And so, 100%. I really wanted to spell that myth. And um, I, I also believe that, um, in, and what emerged hugely out of the data was that um, several of the women um, indicated, Pacific Islander women in the study, that. Um, their reason for staying in relationships where some of that was violent had more to do with the way that they viewed their role, their cultural role. As a woman? As a, as a woman within the cultural role. So if they, so when they saw themselves as, um, I'm here for the children. Mm-hmm. I'm here to be a good mother. I am here to be... Um, I'm the glue that holds the family together. Yeah. I, it, I'm not here because I'm weak. I'm it it had nothing to do strong. with them being weak. Yeah. And I and I have to say, it was uh, when we peeled back the layers, it wasn't related to their self-esteem mm-hmm. either. It was really related to the way that they perceived their roles. Mm-hmm. And when they perceived that they were successful in their roles, they were like, whatever price I have to pay. Mm-hmm. So... It would be a misnomer for um, a Caucasian or Western culture therapist to come in and say, you know, you just got to get out of that. Of course, we want them to be safe and we want to protect them. But what we're doing is we're downplaying 
the way that they perceive, they perceive themselves, themselves yeah. and their own role and their identity. Now, once we address that in ways that are meaningful to them that way, then we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's really a misnomer to just go in and say, girl, you know, you're being abused and that's the reason why you need to get out. Leave him. Leave yeah. him. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we can talk that, you know, we can say that till the cows, you know, come home. Come home. Right. <laughs> it's not going to change anything. Yeah. But what seemed to shift was when they, when the conversations was around how how they were and how well they fulfilled their roles. Mm -hmm. Were they fulfilling them in ways that satisfied them and that they knew? Even if they were being abused. Even if they were being abused. So it was really important because it wasn't on the radar, right? Mm -hmm. that, obviously that emerged in the, you know, it wasn't on the radar for them. They didn't see it as abuse. It was yeah. just part of the territory. But in order to be able to discern that there's some level of, you know, abuse or some, you know, this violence is going on, they had to be able to address it through this channel of, I have to talk about it through my cultural role. Mm -hmm. And then I can begin to discern some of these pieces that you're talking to me about. But that's almost like saying, I was raped while I was married. I mean, that's just not even on the, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. that's not even on the radar. Uh -huh. So... That's what I'm saying is, is for our culture, we have to go through certain channels that make sense to our people within our culture. And that's part of my argument in, in Kaimana is in that dissertation. in my dissertation is that our well-being takes place outside the mind. We know that. And there's studies outside, you know, that prove that beyond that, Kaimana says, so because of that, <laughs> there are these echo biopsychosocial spiritual factors that we have to take a look at within our own culture. And until we hit um, those cultural roles and those pieces of the way that our people actually absorb the information and really perceive them, um, the relatability is down. And that's that as it was another piece that came out in Kaimana was because the rela relatability was down and they couldn't have these kind of conversations with the with the therapist mm -hmm. they never went back right. and finished the programs mm -hmm. and so that emerged i can totally <laughs> i can agree with i mean i understand that because yes i one-on-one -on -one therapy was very hard for me because of that yes. because i didn't feel like i was understood mm -hmm. because i felt like i had to do more explaining yes about certain things in my life or in my culture yes. than actually receiving any like yes help. so it just it was exhausting yes <laughs> so right and our people mm -hmm. we're gonna be like are we gonna go back yeah no. i'm like no i don't know i'm not gonna explain right <laughs> so that's the purpose of this study is to be able to say we really need to get much more specific and careful and be careful about how we approach our own people. Mm -hmm. And, but when we do it correctly and when we do it effectively and with respect yeah. and with love for our people, our people are the first to, to come and say with open arms, yes, I want mm -hmm. that. I want that information. They'll embrace it, mm -hmm. but it has to be done with respect. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just, um, it's, it's been a great honor to be able to uh, work on that and to be able to talk about this. So yeah. it's something that's near and dear to my heart. So Oh, I know. I'm familiar <laughs> with your work. And I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Vienna. Well, Thank I don't you. want to take up any more of your time. I mean, I just have a billion questions, you know, just... <laughs>
coming out of my my brain, but I at the same time I just want to let you know how much I love and respect you, Lonnie, for thank sitting you. down with me and having this conversation in the sake of our people. Oh, thank you. So, well, you're you're um, I really love the work that you're doing, and I also wanted to share with you my email just in case. Yes. So it's Lonnie L A N I dot Taholo T A H O L O at utah.edu so lani.taholo at utah.edu so that's my school um, <laughs> email yes if some anyone has questions mm -hmm. on kaimana the study or what we talked about today and yeah thank you for all that you do vienna i love and appreciate you and all your amazing work thank, thank you. you so much thank you all right <laughs>